Before we dive into our study uh, this morning, I do need to make mention of a couple of things. I want to remind you that our Sunday night rotation continues, and tonight we will be introducing a new monthly theme. Tonight we will be introducing the theme of intimacy in the home, and we'll be kicking that off with an in-depth study. So please make plans to join us tonight at 6 o'clock as we uh, introduce our next monthly topic. I also want to make you aware that our, our first Go and Do project of the year is currently underway. It is our annual uh, appreciation bag collection. And what we are doing this year, in the past, we've, we've collected items for uh, medical personnel, for uh, first responders, for educators. This year, it's been chosen that we're going to uh, make appreciation bags for postal workers and delivery drivers, the people who bring you all the things you need. And so this will include United States Postal Service. This will include UPS, FedEx, Amazon drivers, maybe even your, your uh, DoorDash driver, whatever you want. But these guys are keeping you afloat and taking care of making sure the packages get to you. So there is a link in the bulletin, a QR code in the bulletin and a website link in the bulletin that will take you to a, a um, um, sign-up genius page where you can see what items we need. You can sign up for some items and bring those items to put in those bags. The bags will be put together at a later date. But we need all items that will be in the appreciation bags brought here by February 14th. So please go check out that uh, Sign Up Genius page. Find out the things that we're trying to collect for these appreciation bags. Sign up for what you can bring and get it here by a week from Wednesday, February the 14th. And then we can, uh, we'll be assembling those bags at a later date and distributing them as we have time. So please, please check out our first Go and Do project of the year and take part in it as a great opportunity to serve our community. And uh, this is the cover of the card that will be going in those bags at that time. It's that time of year when many graduating seniors are waiting to hear from colleges to which they have applied. And unfortunately, as many of us know, it's often the case that you get rejected by certain universities you wish to attend. Back in 1981, a guy by the name of Paul Devlin penned the following response to his college rejection letters, which made its way into the New York Times. You may not be able to read that, but it says this. Having reviewed the many rejection letters I have received in the last few weeks, it is with great regret that I must inform you I am unable to accept your rejection at this time. <laughs> this year, after applying to a great many colleges and universities, I received an especially fine crop of rejection letters. Unfortunately, the number of rejections that I can accept is limited. Each of my rejections was reviewed carefully and on an individual basis. Many factors were taken into account the size of the institution, the student-to-faculty ratio, the location, reputation, costs, and social atmosphere. I am certain that most colleges I applied to are more than qualified to reject me. I am also sure that some mistakes were made in turning away some of these rejections. I can only hope they were few in number. I am aware of the keen disappointment my decision may bring, Throughout my deliberations, I have kept in mind the time and effort it may have taken for you to reach your decision to reject me. Keep in mind that at times it was necessary for me to reject even those letters of rejection that would normally have met my traditionally high standards. I appreciate your having enough interest in me to reject my application. Let me take the opportunity to wish you well in what I'm sure will be a successful academic year. See you in the fall. 
This morning, I begin with this humorous rejection story to set the stage for a not-so-humorous rejection story. It all centers around Jesus' lone homecoming experience. The New Testament only records one occasion when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth. This homecoming incited emotions ranging from excitement to anger. And this morning we're going to examine how the people of Nazareth reacted to Jesus when he returned home that one single time he did it in his ministry. And the reason we're looking at this story is because their varying degrees of reaction reveal the two options that we have when it comes to how we're going to respond to Jesus. So I want you to start off by thinking of this. How did the people of Nazareth react to Jesus? A moment ago, we read the longest account of the three versions of that account, the one that is recorded in Luke chapter 4. If you journey over to the book of Matthew, to the 13th chapter, you'll discover that the people's reaction to Jesus was acceptance. Their initial reaction was acceptance. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 says that Jesus came to his hometown and taught in their synagogue. Let's not underestimate the importance, the significance of the information that is unfolded in just those few words. When Jesus came to Nazareth, he was invited to speak to the people during their Sabbath service. He's invited. He didn't storm into the synagogue and demand some time up at the pulpit to address the congregation. He is personally invited to address the congregation. It's very similar to what unfolds, the honor that is bestowed when Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 went to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. If you were to skip over there for just a moment, you'd see in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15 that after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So it's not uncommon for someone of a particular reputation, a particular standing in the community, to be invited to address the synagogue audience on the Sabbath. And that invitation is extended to Jesus. He's not demanding the opportunity. He's not asking for the opportunity. He's offered the opportunity. Jesus had become so well known and so well respected that the synagogue of his childhood invited him to address them during their time of Bible study. And this isn't really surprising when you consider what preceded this event. So if you go over to Luke's account of the story in chapter 4 of Luke, you'll discover that it immediately follows Jesus' temptation. The first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4 record Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and then the last 15 and 16 verses of the chapter record his trip to Nazareth. But in between, in between those events separating Jesus' temptation from his trip to Nazareth, we have these two verses, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned. He returned from the wilderness 
where he had been tempted, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus has been down in the, the, the Jordan River area for his temptation. He was baptized and then went into his temptation. Down there in the wilderness of Judea. But he made his way back to Galilee, which is where Nazareth is situated. And his reputation is preceding him. Why? Well, see, Luke jumps ahead for us a little bit. Luke sped things up a little bit for us. Because if we go over to Matthew and Mark's account, there's a lot of events that unfold between his temptation and his trip to Nazareth. For example, there's a lot of miracles that happen. If you look at the the events that unfold between the temptation and the trip to Nazareth in Matthew or Mark's account, you'll find uh, his healing a leper or his healing of a paralytic. You'll find him healing a man with a withered hand. You'll find him calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see him casting out demons into a herd of pigs. You'll even read about him bringing Jairus' daughter back to life. All of these miracles, it seems, unfolded before he ever made the trip to Nazareth. So his reputation as a miracle worker precedes him. But he also engages in some very deep teaching before he gets to Nazareth. In Matthew's account, the Sermon on the Mount is preached before he ever goes to Nazareth. Some parables are presented, such as the parable of the sower, before he ever makes it to Nazareth. So his reputation as a wise teacher also precedes him. And what this means is that by the time Jesus got to Nazareth, his reputation is preceding him. So in inviting Jesus to read from the scroll of Isaiah and comment on it, the Nazareth synagogue demonstrated their acceptance of him as an esteemed teacher. Matthew chapter 13 is not, not only says that Jesus came to his hometown and taught in their synagogue, but that very same verse, verse 54 of that chapter, makes it known that his hearers were astonished at what they heard. Astonished! They're not just willing to let him come teach. They are amazed at what he says. Luke expounds on this a little more, saying in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, this was not an unusual response to the teaching of Jesus. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Astonished, marveled, amazed. These are the descriptions of the people who are listening to Jesus. That's why we can say that their initial response to him was acceptance, because not only do they invite him in, but they are impressed by what they heard. They're willing to listen to him, but they are 
amazed at the beauty of his teaching. They could not believe this man who was once the child of Mary and Joseph was the one communicating with them at this level. So their initial reaction to Jesus was acceptance, complete acceptance. But then their reaction suddenly and drastically changes. And their ultimate or final reaction to Jesus was rejection. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, we're told that they took offense at him. Now, why are they offended? How did they get to the point where they're astonished and they're marveling to being offended? Let's take a moment to consider that for a moment. According to Luke chapter 4, Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah and asked to read a passage from it and then expound upon that passage. He chose the passage in Isaiah that he would read from. And he chose Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. And according to Luke's version of the account, this is what Isaiah 61 said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, for Jesus, this apparently was the most important messianic messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. He will reference this very passage, this Isaiah chapter 61 passage, again when John the Baptist's disciples come to ask him if he's the Messiah or not. His answer to them was, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, his point was this passage in Isaiah gives all the evidence you need to know whether or not someone is the Messiah. Because if he is Restoring the sight of the blind, he's checking that box. If he's, uh, uh, if he's setting at liberty those who are oppressed, he's checking that box. If he's proclaiming good news to the poor, he's checking that box. For Jesus, this passage gave the evidence by which someone could know whether or not he was the Christ. Now, Remember, Jesus' reputation preceded him to Nazareth. That audience had heard of his miracles as well as his teaching. So when Jesus referenced this passage and said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, his audience didn't miss the implication of what he was saying. They knew what he was claiming. They understood that he was claiming to be the one about whom Isaiah was prophesying. And that's where the offense begins. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 through 56, look at what the audience began to say among themselves. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this The carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Do you see what the crowd is saying? Do you see what the audience is thinking? The crowd is saying to themselves, isn't he one of us? 
Wasn't he raised right here like us? Didn't he grow up just like us? In my opinion, what's going through their mind is that they are offended because his, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And it's not that that demeans God. It demeans them. They are offended because Jesus' claim to be the Messiah puts them down because he was one of them. Because this man, as they called him, that's what they identified him as, a man. They've known him since he was a boy. And now he's claiming to be someone bigger and better and more important than them. And that doesn't compute. Because they remember seeing his humanity in a way that no one else ever had. They remember watching him make mistakes as a boy. Now, don't get me wrong. A mistake and a sin are two different things. He worked more than likely with his dad in his carpentry shop. Do you think Jesus ever missed a nail and hit his thumb? Do you ever think he misaligned wood as he was working on it? Is it possible that he made mistakes like every other human does from time to time? They might even remember when he got separated from his parents during that Passover trip to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And maybe in their minds, they registered it as an act of disobedience because they didn't know all the details. Maybe they were even aware of his scandalous birth. And on that basis alone, wrote him off as a possible Messianic candidate. You see, in their eyes, they knew him differently. They saw him grow up. It's the same reason we still use his quote about a prophet and his hometown today. Because where you grow up, you typically don't get accepted. And so their offense begins because he's demeaning them. He's elevating himself, which puts them down. That's how they're seeing this. But although they were offended when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, they were not infuriated, frustrated, until he implied that he would not perform any miracles there. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus knew what they were saying to each other. Jesus knew that their heart knew what their hearts thought. He knew that they didn't believe he was the Messiah, and the only reason they were there was because they wanted to see a miracle. And one thing Jesus refused to be refused to be was a sideshow act. So, in effect, he said that he wasn't going to perform for them because they weren't deserving of his power, because they lacked the key ingredient, faith. And then he went on to imply that the Gentiles were more deserving of his attention than they were. Notice the two examples he gave in verse 25 through verse 27. After he said a prophet's not 
uh, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What is he saying? He's saying that in those instances, in those examples in the Old Testament, the miracle didn't come to the Israelites. The miracle went to someone who was a Gentile. The miracle went to that widow in Zarephath, not to a widow in Judea. The miracle went to Naaman the Syrian, not to one of the lepers among Israel. And by implication, he's saying that the, the Gentiles are more deserving of his miracles than the, these, Nazar, these uh, people living in Nazareth. And this enraged them because it was a slap in the face to their heritage. How dare he imply that the Gentiles were more deserving of his miracles than them? They are God's chosen people. They are the ones keeping Mosaic law. They are the descendants of Abraham. How dare he? How dare he trample on their heritage? How dare he say that Gentiles are more deserving than them? This, in fact, so infuriated them that we're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, that they were filled with wrath. And they attempted to execute him by throwing him off a cliff. You see, by the end of the story, they've gone from initial acceptance to ultimate rejection. And the reason I bring that story up today is because we are just like them. We can be guilty of rejecting Jesus today just like they did then. And you need to understand that acceptance or rejection, those are the only options when it comes to Jesus. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You, accept, you either accept him or you reject him. And the thing is, most of us assume that we've accepted Jesus because at some point in our past we confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God or because we call ourselves Christians However, just like that audience in the Nazareth synagogue, we have the capacity to accept Jesus at first but reject him in the end. And that's because whether we accept Jesus or reject Jesus is not limited to a once-in-a-lifetime confession. There's more to it than that. And that's what I want you to think about today. The Nazareth audience went from accepting him to rejecting him. How do we do that today? Well, one way is that by not accepting his teachings. We can reject Jesus by refusing to accept his teachings. There's a story over in John chapter 6. It's after the feeding of the 5,000. A great multitude follows Jesus. They're ultimately following him because they want to see another miracle, but he utilized their presence as an opportunity to teach them about who he is. So he launched into the famous bread of life discourse. He ends up saying this in John chapter 6 and verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then in verse 54, he adds this statement. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, he was speaking metaphorically and making reference to the Lord's Supper, which had not yet been instituted. But that's why many of his followers didn't understand it yet. In fact, we're told in John chapter 6 and verse 60 that when many of his disciples heard it, heard him say that about feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And we're told in verse 66 that many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. They finally encountered a teaching that was too difficult for them to accept. They rejected Jesus because something he said was too hard for them to accept. Some of us are like these former disciples. We began following Jesus, but when we we came across a teaching of his that we didn't like or that we found too difficult to obey, we either ignore it or justify not keeping it. But what we're ultimately doing is rejecting him. Think about it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He put conditions on forgiveness right there. The condition for your forgiveness is your willingness to forgive. But there's some of us still holding on to grudges. There's some of us who have categorized people and offenses over here, and we're not letting that go, and we're not forgiving it. We're holding on to it. There's some of us who still haven't forgiven people. And you know what? When, when, you, when you refuse to forgive, you're refusing to accept Jesus. You're rejecting Jesus because you're rejecting his teaching. Or, or think about Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, one thing I want you to notice there is that is conditioned on sin. Oh, just because somebody hurt my feelings or offended me, that does not give me the right to go and blast them for it. It's when they sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. How many of us, instead of going and talking to our brother or sister in Christ, go to one of the ministers or go to one of the elders? We take an alternative route for addressing that issue. And what are we doing, if nothing more, than rejecting what Jesus told us to do? Or think about his instructions in Matthew chapter 19. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. How many of us have looked for alternative loopholes for divorce? Tried to find other reasons in which we could justify divorce outside of sexual immorality. And we look at Jesus' instructions about marriage and divorce, and remarriage. And they just seem too hard. And so we reject them. See, we cannot forget that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does it say 
to Jesus when we refuse to keep his commandments. I'm going to suggest based on this verse that if we refuse to keep his commandments, then it's not communicating love. It might even be communicating the opposite. My decision to accept Jesus includes my decision to accept all of his commandments, to keep all of his commandments, no matter if they're the commandments I like or the commandments I find hard. My responsibility as a disciple is to keep all his commandments. Otherwise, I'm rejecting him. But that's not the only way we can reject Jesus. We can also reject Jesus by refusing to adhere to his standards. Think about the uh, rich young man who came to Jesus and asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus initially answered this man's question by pointing to Mosaic law. Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. In effect, Jesus was saying, keep the commandments, just as we saw earlier. But this rich young man had done that his whole life. For the rich young man following Jesus was not an issue of whether or not he was willing to obey Jesus' teachings. He had already proven that in his willingness to keep the commandments from his childhood. For the rich young man, the issue had more to do with Christ's standards. You see, Jesus instructed this rich young man to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. Now, that's not a command Jesus has issued to all of us. And we know the reason Jesus gave those instructions to this guy is because this guy's heart was not with Jesus. This guy's standard revolved around wealth. Christ was secondary. This wasn't a matter of obedience to a particular teaching, but an issue of denying the self in order to uphold Christ's standards. The rich young man rejected Jesus when he decided that Jesus' standards were too high. And some of us are like this guy. We, we began following Jesus, but when we came across a standard that was too high, we lowered it to meet what we think was an acceptable standard. Think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him to the other also. That is a great philosophy. But in practice, how many of us, instead of turning the other cheek, accept the practice of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Revenge is a better option for us. Hey, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that was in the Bible. So guess what? Instead of accepting the, the uh, turn the other cheek, standard. I'm going to regress to the standard of the Old Testament that Jesus rejected. And in so doing, am I not just rejecting Jesus? Or think about the standard that appears in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, I understand that we're supposed to love all people, but this loving the enemies thing, that's taking it a little too far, Jesus. Why should I love someone that hates me? 
whether that be someone from another nation who hates me because of my nationality or someone from another race that hates me because of my race or someone within my own household whom I don't get along with and I'm stuck with because we're married. I'm not speaking about Sarah specifically. I'm giving a general example to apply to you. Honey. But sometimes we look at the standard of loving our enemies and say that's too much. I'm not going to do that. And when we reject Jesus' standards, are we not rejecting him? We can never forget that Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The pursuit of perfection is the call we've been given. And that means we have to hold ourselves to the standards that Jesus held himself because he's the only one who ever lived perfectly. And if I'm unwilling to hold myself to the standards Jesus held himself, then I'm not in pursuit of the perfection to which I was called as a disciple. And I'm ultimately rejecting Jesus. And one last thing, we can reject Jesus by refusing to associate with him. It's in Matthew chapter 26, we read about Peter, about what he did after Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And unlike the other apostles, save John, Peter literally followed Jesus to his trial. And while Jesus was being interrogated, humiliated, and falsely accused in the house of the high priest, Peter stood outside in the courtyard waiting to see what would happen. And on three different occasions, he's asked or he's accused of being a follower of Jesus. And on three different occasions, he denied it. By the end of that night, Peter had rejected Jesus three times. It was all because he decided that a connection to Jesus was too risky. And some of us are like him. We are comfortable following Jesus as long as it is socially acceptable. But as soon as we encounter a situation in which being associated with Jesus could hurt our credibility or endanger our well-being, we jump ship. If it's going to make us look bad, all of a sudden, oh, nope, we're not using that name anymore. We're not Christians anymore. There are some of us who really struggle with declaring our relationship with Jesus Christ, with admitting publicly that we are Christians. It's great to be a Christian on Sunday in the South. When I'm inside the confines of the building and I'm below the Mason-Dixon line, it's very easy to be a Christian, isn't it? When you're in the Bible Belt, but get outside this area, get outside the state of Georgia, get outside the South, get outside these church building walls, get out into the public. Get out there where it is not politically correct to believe the Bible. And let's see how many of us retain that identity. And you know what you're doing when you're refusing to admit your association with Christ? You're ultimately rejecting him because this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
You see, accepting or rejecting Jesus doesn't come down to a once-in-a-lifetime decision. It's an everyday decision. And the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because in your home, have you accepted Jesus or have you rejected him? Think very carefully. Is your home one in which his teachings, even the hard ones, are kept? Is your home one in which his standards are adhered to, no matter how high they are? Is your home one in which association with him is proudly and consistently showcased? With this emphasis on the home that we are given to the year 2024, Decide today whether or not your home is one in which he will be accepted or rejected. Because there's only one right answer in the end. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, whether it be to accept Jesus on his terms by confessing your faith that he is God's son, by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, or whether you need as someone who has made that decision to re-examine whether or not you've really rejected him, then we invite you to come. All together we